All right, turn to Matthew chapter 5 and Luke 18. All right, we'll read one verse in Matthew 5 and then we'll go to Luke 18 and then we're actually going to flip to another passage a little later in the, in the message. We're in a series, series called Happiness Redefined. And the reason we had to put the word redefined on there is because Jesus actually defined happiness for us, but it is a redefinition of what the world tells us. It's, it seems opposite even of what the world tells us. And it's in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the beginning called the Beatitudes. The word Beatitudes literally means blissful or happy. And last week we talked about that happiness is from the, the blessed, like blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn. The word blessed there is the Greek word makarios, which means happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. That's the, the title of the message today. The poor in spirit are happy. And that's what that word means. It is opposed to uh, another Greek word, uh, and I know you love these Greek words, that's why I give them to you, um, is eulogio. Eulogio uh, is also translated blessed in the New Testament, but that means an external blessing. And the reason makarios is different is because it is a happiness that's on the inside of us because God, who is happy, now lives in us. And so it's not, it's not dependent upon circumstances or material wealth. So that's what we're talking about, all right? So, Matthew 5, verse 3. Here's the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me read it to you one more time. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just a couple of things to notice there. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That literally is the is present tense. In other words, when we become poor in spirit, we immediately begin to partake in the kingdom of heaven. So we need to understand what it means to be poor in spirit. But before I go there, I want to tell you something about the Beatitudes. Uh, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. These are not wishes of Jesus. These are not hopes of Jesus. Jesus is not wishing that poor people who are poor in spirit are blessed. He's not wishing that those who mourn will be comforted. He's not wishing that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled. He is making a divine pronouncement of truth and saying this is a fact. He's stating something. The opposite of the word blessed uh, in the Greek is uai. Uai. <laughs> Three syllables, uh, four letters actually. But what it means is, it's translated many times, woe. And you've seen it before in the Bible, especially in Matthew 23. It's in Matthew 23 eight times. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you. Okay. But let me tell you what it, it means in the Greek. It means doomed or cursed. Now, the reason I'm telling you that is, is because when Jesus said this, this to the scribes and Pharisees, He wasn't wishing them to be doomed. He wasn't wishing them to be cursed. He was simply stating a fact. He was saying, because this is the way you are, because you won't repent, because you won't open your heart to me, to the gospel, you're doomed. You're cursed. You're doomed. The reason I'm telling you that is, is I want you to understand about the Beatitudes. This is not wishful thinking on Jesus' part. He is literally making divine pronouncements of truth. He is saying, people who are poor in spirit are blessed. They are. There's no way, two ways about it. 
People who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled. People who are pure in heart will see God. So I want you to understand that. These are not wishes of Jesus. These are pronouncements of truth. That's the first thing I want you to understand, right? So I've got, I've got three questions for you about being poor in spirit. Here's the first one. Why does Jesus begin with poor in spirit? You know, the Beatitudes, this is the first one. So why would he begin with this one? The reason is, is because this is where our journey with God begins. If you haven't come to the place where you realized your poverty of spirit, you haven't started your journey with God yet. You haven't got saved yet. The only way that theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the only way that we'll ever go to heaven, is we realize that we are completely and totally bankrupt before God. We have absolutely nothing in our account that could be credited toward heaven. Nothing. As a matter of fact, our account is completely full of things that can be credited for hell, but not heaven. Let me put it to you this way. Self-righteousness is man's attempt to get to God. Self-righteousness is the greatest enemy of happiness that you have. Self-righteousness is based on pride. Pride is the original sin. I said that one time, and a guy said, Adam and Eve? I said, no, 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 way before Adam and Eve, Satan. The original sin was Satan, was Lucifer, and it was pride. That's the original sin. And that's what self-righteousness is based on. Self-righteousness somehow says, there is something in me that's good enough to get there. Somehow I can earn this free gift. And that's what religion tries to teach us as well. Another way to say, talk, give you an example of self-righteousness is, um, let's... Say that you and the person beside you owe one hundred trillion dollars. Okay? You each owe one hundred trillion dollars. The person beside you has paid five cents toward the debt, and you've paid ten cents toward the debt. Self-righteousness makes you feel better than that person. And that's how foolish it is. That's foolishness. Self-righteousness says that we're rich when we're poor in spirit. Do you remember uh, the Laodicean church? Revelation 2 and 3, there are seven churches of Asia Minor. And Jesus, it's literally Jesus, speaks to them through the Apostle John in a vision. Those seven churches. And the church at Laodicea, you'll remember it because of this. The church at Laodicea was the uh, lukewarm church. Remember the lukewarm church? Because you're lukewarm and you're not hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. By the way, the Greek word for spit there uh, means uh, spit. Um, so, but we know they were lukewarm, but why were they lukewarm? What caused this church to be lukewarm? And remember, these are believers. He wasn't saying to the world to lost people because you're lukewarm. He's saying to believers. People who go to church and believe in Jesus. He, and it tells us why. Let me, let me read it to you. Revelation 3, verse 16. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because, here's why you're lukewarm. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy. And watch this phrase. Have need of nothing. Have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, 
I know that he's talking in spiritual terms here. He is not talking about material wealth when they said they had the attitude that I'm rich. And he said, no, you're poor. I know that because the Laodiceans were not a bunch of uh, blind nude people running around. So he's not talking in the natural, you're blind and naked. He's talking in the spiritual. What caused them, what caused believers to be lukewarm was self-righteousness. You believe that in the spirit you're rich and have need of nothing. The ultimate deception is to believe you need nothing when you need everything. The ultimate deception is to believe you have everything when you have nothing. And that's what Jesus is saying to them. Here's what he's saying to them. You have forgotten that without me, you have no hope. It is because of my blood sacrifice, not because of your good works. And you've forgotten that. Therefore, even as believers, you've grown lukewarm. Now, let me tell you again how this lukewarmness comes in. Um, we talked last week about the Essenes and the Zealots and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the four dominant sects when, uh, in Judaism at the time of Jesus. And we said we still got those divisions in, in the church today. All right. In the same way, we have the Talmud today. Uh, Judaism came up with the Talmud. Uh, you had the Torah, which is the law of God, which are the, it's the first five books of the Old Testament. That's the law of God. But the uh, Jew, Jewish rabbis and teachers came up with the Talmud. And a lot of people think that the Talmud was adding to the laws of God. But let me give you a different perspective on it. The Talmud was literally the way that the teachers made the law of God doable or manageable. In other words, when they looked at the Torah, they said, that's too hard. No one can, can do that. And that was the whole point. God was saying, okay, if you want to know what it's like to, to get to my standard, it's perfection. And so he gives the law of God. And obviously he knows that he's bringing a blood sacrifice in his own son that's going to pay for our sins. But the point is that the, the, the rabbis, the teachers of the day said, okay, we, we can't, you can't do that. You can't do that. So we're going to interpret to you how to make the law of God manageable. When God says, you know, to honor the Sabbath, then we're going to tell you, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, but you can do this, this, and this. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. That's the way we are in churches today. And different churches have different Talmuds. I want you to think about this. Uh, you, you can say to someone, someone, or someone might say to you, I'm keeping the law of God. And you say, well, what does that mean that you're keeping the law of God? Here's the response you might get from someone. Well, um, I don't smoke or drink or chew or go with girls who do. In some churches, that's the law of God. You, come on, you ever been, you ever heard, been to church like that? That as long as you don't do these things, you're okay. Listen, the, the major difference in two denominations that I could name for you is that one of them will speak to you in the liquor store and the other one won't. <laughs> one parks in the front, one parks in the back. And that's keeping the law of God. There, there are uh, churches that tell women how to dress. Am I telling the truth? And as long as a woman dresses like that, she is keeping the law of God. 
And not only should she dress that way, uh, but uh, they tell her uh, not to wear jewelry, not to wear makeup. I'm in favor of makeup, by the way. <laughs> I like it. It's a good thing. The house needs paint and you ought to paint it. No, just... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But there are churches that holiness is not wearing makeup. Is that, is that, am I telling the truth? Or how a woman wears her hair. By the way, that's bondage. <laughs> that's holiness to people. Listen to me. That's a Talmud. Here's what I'm saying to you. Are you keeping the Talmud? You don't have to. That's the whole point. That's why Jesus came, to wipe out the handwriting requirements against us. That's why He came. Hey, there's a, I heard about churches last week. <laughs> they're part of their Talmud, and they don't call it that, but part of their Talmud was one cup communion. You know? You can't have communion in these little cups. You have to only drink it out of one cup. Have anyone ever heard of church like that? That's the law of God. Jesus only had one cup. He only had 12 at his party, too. <laughs> but they, they believed in one cup communion, and then they built a new building. And the church grew, and it took too long to pass the one cup around. So they had two sections in the new building, so they got a one cup for both sections. They had two one cups. And then when they built another building, they had six section, sections, so they got six one-cups. But they couldn't get the little plastic cups. Because that's not the law of God. How foolish. Okay, let me tell you what keeping a Talmud does. And you ought to see what's your background and what you think is holy. Because let me tell you what it does. As long as you keep your little list of rules, then you feel righteous. And as long as you feel righteous because of your behavior, you will never be happy. Because happiness is realizing that you're completely bankrupt in the Spirit. And that your account is filled by His righteousness and not by yours. So, here's, point, here's question number two. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, um, some people believe that it means to be financially poor. But that's what Jesus was talking about. Luke actually says, he just says, blessed are the poor. Well, it doesn't take anything away from Matthew's full declaration of what Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, because that word poor is the same word in Luke 4 that we talked about two, two weeks ago, where Jesus said he came to preach the gospel to the poor. He didn't say poor in spirit, but he meant poor in spirit, spiritually poor. He doesn't mean that I only came to preach the gospel to those who are financially poor, because if he means that, that leaves out nearly every person in America. Compared to two-thirds of the world, we're rich. So the gospel's for us, too. And, and, and again, let me say it another way. If, if being financially poor means that you're, you're blessed, someone's blessed, then we ought to quit helping the poor. Because we're taking away their blessings. And if you want to go a step further, we need to take all of your money so you could be blessed, too. It doesn't have anything to do with material wealth. Nothing to do at all. 
This is a spiritual poorness. And, and the Greek word here is, is tukos, and it's, it's, it's uh, opposed to another Greek word for poor, which is panes. Panes means the working poor. It, it means uh, literally uh, daily subsistence, to toil for daily subsistence. In other words, it's people who can work, but they can't earn very much. That's panace. That's not the word that Jesus uses here. He uses the word tukos. Tukos refers to the begging poor. People who are physically disabled, blind, maimed, crippled, in some way, they are so disabled that they cannot work. The only thing they can do is beg. It refers to a, 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 a hiding type of a beggar who's ashamed of his appearance, who sits in the shadows and who's, who's cringing and, and who's sniveling and who just sticks his cup out. And if someone passing by doesn't have mercy, he will die. That's the word Jesus uses to refer to poor in spirit. Now, listen to me carefully. You, you, you need to understand this. That's... Where we are spiritually. Spiritually, we are blind, maimed, crippled, cowering, sniveling, cringing, poor, barely sticking our cup out, ashamed of who we are, ashamed of our works, ashamed of our past. And if someone doesn't have mercy on us, we will die. And when you know that about yourself, and that someone did have mercy on you, you're happy. And that's a happiness that the world can't take away. But self-righteousness does everything it can to take that away from us. Yesterday, February 16th, was my spiritual birthday. I was saved February 16th, 1981. So if anyone ever asks, how old's Pastor Robert? 27. <laughs> 27 years old. As of yesterday. But that's where I was in that motel room 27 years ago. Hiding, crouching, cringing, embarrassed, ashamed, knowing that if God didn't have mercy on me, I had no hope. And stuck my cup out in the shadows of a motel room. And God took the cup and threw it away and lifted me up and strengthened me and healed me and set me free. When you talk about mercy, it wasn't that he just dropped a coin in my cup. He adopted me into his family. And the way you stay happy is you never forget that. Now, look at Luke 18. Because Luke 18 really contrasts the self-righteous and the poor in spirit. And it's Jesus himself telling a parable. Luke 18, verse 9. Also he spoke this parable to them. Saying, watch this, to, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And let me just make a comment on that right there. Everyone who has self-righteousness despises others. If you have a problem with criticism, you have a problem with self-righteousness. If you look down at anyone, it's because you look up at you. That's a pretty strong statement, wasn't it? That's self-righteousness. Also, he spoke this parable, some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. That's the outcome of trusting in yourself. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Now, now watch this humble prayer. 
God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. (laughs) Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this fellow in church beside me. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, cowering, cringing, shamed, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see the two attitudes? By the way, this goes on to say, Jesus said, I tell you, this man, the cowering, cringing beggar, went to his house justified. That means saved in the Bible, rather than the other. Let me tell you another thing he did. He went to his house happy, blessed, makarios, because he met Jesus. That's the way you get saved. So, here's question number three. How do I keep an attitude of poor in spirit? That's the attitude that we have when we first get saved. When I got saved, after I got saved in that motel room, I remember walking out of that motel room and I couldn't stop smiling. I, I looked stoned. And I, I couldn't, I just had this goofy grin on my face for weeks. And I, could, I couldn't stop. Everywhere I went, I couldn't stop smiling. People would ask me, why are you smiling so much? Here's why. Because I knew that I didn't deserve it. I knew it. Well, how do you keep that attitude 27 years later? Well, flip back to Isaiah chapter 6. Let me show you one more scripture. Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, it's just, it's, it's in, back in the Old Testament there, somewhere. Two books before Lamentations. <laughs> Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. But Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, pretty easy to find uh, after uh, Song of Solomon. Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Psalms. Going <laughs> backward that way. Okay? Here's how you keep. The attitude of being poor in spirit. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Put yourself in Isaiah's place. This is incredible. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, or angels. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. With two He flew. And one cried to another, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of Him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, watch this, woe is me. All right, let me, let me paraphrase that for you. Because the Hebrew word for woe is the same, means the same thing as the Greek. I am doomed. That's what Isaiah said. I'm doomed in the presence of this holy God because I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm doomed. And, of course, the outcome is that God takes a coal from off the altar and touches his lips. And here's what he says. This has purged your iniquity or cleansed your iniquity, taken your iniquity away. That's the encounter. In other words, how do I keep this attitude? Okay, this is it. You've got to get in the presence of a holy God every day. You've got to have an encounter like this. You've got to see God. Listen, listen to me very carefully. When you get in the presence of a rich God, you'll see how poor you are. You need to think about that all week, that statement. 
When you get in the presence of a rich God, rich in mercy, rich in grace, rich in holiness, rich in purity, you'll see how poor you are. And you'll walk out saying, God, thank you, thank you, thank you. You'll have no problem with self-righteousness if you see Jesus. Pride can't live in the presence of God. Can't live. So this is this is the key. This is the key to be happy. This is where it starts. It, you see, when you got saved, you were happy. You know why? Because you knew you were poor in spirit. You knew your only hope was Jesus. But after 15, 20, 30 years of doing the right thing, going to church and fulfilling the Talmud that your church set forth, that's when self-righteousness comes in. And self-righteousness will keep you from being happy. And let me tell you one more thing about the Beatitudes. And I'm going to ask you a question that is a satirical question. Uh, a a tongue-in-cheek thing, okay? So just, just follow me. But I've got to ask this question, which is kind of humorous, but just stay with me because that will help us get to the next one, okay? Is it possible, is it just possible, that Jesus is perfect? Okay. Obviously. Okay. Dumb question. But here's the reason I wanted to ask that. Is it possible then that the Sermon on the Mount is perfect? Is it possible that the order, the sequence of the Sermon on the Mount is perfect? Alright, then the first of the Sermon of the Mount is the Beatitudes. Is it possible that the order of the Beatitudes is perfect? Is there a sequence in the order of the Beatitudes? I think there is. And let me tell you, I just, I just saw it this week. The reason he begins with blessed are the poor in spirit is because it all begins here. And listen to, listen to the sequence of the Beatitudes, all right? When you realize you're poor in spirit, you're going to mourn. It brings about a mourning and repentance in you. That mourning will produce a meekness in you. It will take away pride. That meekness then will produce a hunger in you for righteousness. Because you'll realize you're not righteous on your own. And when you hunger and thirst after righteousness, according to the, the Beatitudes, you'll be filled. And when you are filled with His righteousness and not your righteousness, you will begin to be merciful because you've had mercy shown to you. And when you start being merciful to other people, then you'll be pure in heart. Because you're not thinking about yourself anymore. You're thinking about others. And when you begin to be merciful to others out of a pure heart, You'll begin, you'll be a peacemaker. You'll begin to help people make peace with God and with other people, which is the ministry of God or the business of God. And when you start doing the business of God, which is helping people make peace with God and others, you're going to get persecuted. Are y'all following me? But the great thing is that you're at such a place now in your walk with God that when someone persecutes you for kingdom business, you are exceedingly glad and you jump for joy. That's the Beatitudes. But it starts because it's the divine order. It's perfect in God's kingdom. It all starts with recognizing that we're poor in spirit. And if you ever get to thinking that you've got it on your own, you're going to lose your joy. Joy comes from knowing Jesus did it for you. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes.